Welcome to another episode of the Teaching Middle School ELA podcast. In this week's episode, we sat down with our curriculum writer at EB Academics, Pat Abel, and we discussed things all about reading comprehension. And honestly, this episode is simply incredible. You're going to want a pen and a paper to take notes for this one because it's so good. The insights that you're going to hear from Pat are extremely practical and can be implemented in your lessons literally this week. We're talking pre-reading activities, summarizing strategies, essential questions, building comprehension supports for struggling readers, and ways to ignite a passion for reading in even your most reluctant readers. This episode is bringing all the good stuff. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Hi there, Caitlin here. Our mission at EB Academics is simple. Help middle school ELA teachers take back their time outside of the classroom by providing them with engaging lessons, planning frameworks, and genuine support so that you can become the best version of yourself, both inside and outside of the classroom. So if you think you might be ready to try something new because you know you simply cannot continue the way that you have been, that I'd invite you to take a moment to check out the EB Teachers Club, the EB Writing Program, or the EB Grammar Program by visiting the links in the description of the podcast. We hope to continue to support you within one of our programs in the future. And in the meantime, we look forward to serving you right here on the podcast each week. All right, teachers, we are back for a second episode of 2024 talking about the science of reading. We aired an episode in January all about this. So if you haven't had a chance to go listen to that one, definitely go back. It's episode 268, The Science of Reading in Your Classroom. And what we've done today is we got a ton of great feedback on, we want more science of reading for middle school. We want more science of reading for middle school, especially on Instagram. Everyone's messaging me saying, all of the PDs that we have are for science of reading in first grade and second grade and elementary school. And I don't really understand how to necessarily apply some of these concepts to my middle school classroom. So today what we're doing is we're talking about the science of reading, but specifically about building reading comprehension at the middle school level. And this is a special treat of a podcast episode because we have a guest on our podcast. Her name is Pat Abel. And I want to just tell you a little bit about Pat before I bring her on. So those of you who don't know this, Pat is actually our curriculum writer. And she did a phenomenal amount of research for you guys before we sat down to record this episode. So she's going to be sharing with you actual research-based practices, stuff that she's found and, and is here to share with you guys so that you don't have to do the legwork to be able to bring these practices in your classroom, right? Like that's why we're here. And that's why we do what we do is to be able to support you in that capacity. So Pat, welcome to the podcast. It's your first episode recording with us ever. We're so excited to have you here. How's it going? It's good. I'm excited to be here. It's my first ever podcast. Over <laughs> in the history of your life. <laughs> I'm usually behind the scenes, so this is exciting. <laughs> well, we so appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge with our teachers. Um, Pat really is just such a wealth of knowledge and such a, a wonderful asset to our community at EB. And the curriculum that we pr get to provide for our teachers, really just Pat is the anchor of all of that in just research-based practices. So Pat, can you share with our teachers, our listeners, just a little bit about your teaching experience, your time at EB? Like, who are you, basically? All right. I will try to keep it short because <laughs> <laughs> a lot has gone into my history and teaching. Um, but basically, I graduated at Eastern Michigan University in 2006. 
um, if, uh, with a degree in language literature and writing for secondary education. Then I moved to Connecticut, where I taught for three years, uh, basic classes, college prep, honors. Then I moved to New Jersey, <laughs> where I tutored elementary and middle school students, and I helped high school students with their college admissions process, like their essays and stuff like that, while I was earning my master's degree um, in education with a concentration in reading. Then I, my husband and I moved back to Michigan, where I taught high school for seven years, including um, AP language. And also I did a lot of co-taught classes with a very large special education population. So I was all over the place um, there. Then my husband, who is a cancer researcher, um, got a great opportunity to run his own cancer lab in Buffalo, New York, where he also has family. So we moved to New York this time. Um, and I was very privileged to be able to take a year off of teaching to get my New York teacher certification, which I did, um, and to help my kids kind of adjust. And that was 2019. <laughs> so you can guess what's coming. Um, <laughs> the pandemic hit. And we were in a brand new state, really young kids. I was still nursing my youngest. And I just could not imagine going into a brand new classroom in just the middle of that storm. So I went online and, and did like um, online editing and revising and stuff like that. And that's where Caitlin accidentally came across my resume. And I ended up working for EB. And I just that's I feel like that's where I was supposed to end up. Yes. Love I love it. it. What a great story. <laughs> and so basically, needless to say, you guys are in great hands. Pat has right? a wealth of experience, a wealth of knowledge. Um, and this is what this is what I love about you, Pat. This is what Pat loves. You know, you talk about someone getting to operate and live in their zone of genius. Like Pat lives in her zone of genius, getting to write curriculum, researching methods. Like I'm just so excited for you to share just everything that you've brought to the table for us in today's podcast episode. So thank you so much for being here, Pat. We so appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. All right, I'm going to hand it over to Jessica to kind of kick things off with some questions. It's basically going to be like a question answer type structure for the episode. Would you say, Jess? I think so. Yeah. And I'm excited because I feel like the questions we're going to ask you, Pat, so much of what you're going to share, I'm willing to bet, is stuff that you put into practice when you're creating resources for EB. So it's just really cool to get this like behind the scenes view of it the research behind it, and then see it in practice. Maybe you'll reference some um, activities or something so teachers can get ideas with them. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this. Okay. So I'm just going to dive right in with our first question. And I'm curious, what are some of these science of reading-based strategies that middle school teachers specifically can do to help improve comprehension in their students? Because I think so often, right, if students are struggling to read, then how can they even understand what they're reading, right? Like it's a, it's a battle. So some practical strategies that teachers can do in middle school. I'd love to hear it. Uh, yeah. So before we get into specific strategies, um, I would say that in general, what I'd like to talk about today is like uh, building background and activating prior knowledge. So what can we do before we even start with the actual lesson? Um, summarizing skills, monitoring comprehension, um, setting essential questions before reading, and then also incorporating high-level questions into reading lessons. So not just comprehension uh, questions, but also deeper level questions. Love that. And can you think of like some pre-reading activities that we do at EB that utilizes those? Like, do we do anticipation stations, for example? Can you speak into like, how would that <laughs> set students up for success to read? Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to mention. <laughs> Love it. See, we work so closely together. Yeah, our <laughs> anticipation stations. So like, for example, um, one of our most popular resources over here is the um, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street unit. Um, 
And we do anticipation stations for those. So before students even watch the episode, the Twilight Zone episode, Monsters Are Doing on, on Maple Street, they uh, go from station to station, just building background that will help them to understand and appreciate what they're going to be experiencing. So like at one station, they learn about Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone. In another station, they're reviewing vocabulary. They go to another station, they make predictions. Um, and in another sta station, they actually make a personal connection uh, to controver controversial statements that relate to the episode. And they kind of take their position, form their opinions, and they can kind of see if their opinions change after they've been viewing. And I love that because I feel like, yes, we could do all those things in the classroom, right? With a handout, right? I could say, write down your predictions or, you know, let's learn some background information about the author. But this makes it just a bit more engaging and fun for students, which I feel like makes it stickier for them, right? Like they're enjoying it, they're engaged, and they're learning, getting that background knowledge, setting them up for success. So can thanks I, for sharing that. Can I sneak something in here? And I don't do it. it. Correct me if I'm like totally off base, but what I'm hearing might work also for one of these things. If we're looking at like incorporating high level questions into reading lessons, mm -hmm. would that be something like where I have um, these high level questions in like a Socratic seminar that I'm doing with my students, for example, or like a silent debate, or is that not applicable to this particular point? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. It wouldn't, that would not probably not be a before reading thing unless you're right. doing more general questions, like life questions. Um, if they're going to be text-based, then I would do it after they've done their reading, but yeah, absolutely. Socratic seminar, um, you know, small group discussions, whole class discussions. There's all kinds of places where you can put those high level questions. Gotcha. Sorry. I've missed the mark on the pre-reading <laughs> aspect of that. No, no, that was a good question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm so here as a listener. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So we have these ideas now for pre-reading, but now as students are actually like engaged in the text, they're reading it. The science of reading it has found that summarizing is really helpful for students to better understand the content. And I think as teachers, we probably know that, right? Like it's something we commonly do with our students, but I will say it can be a struggle, right? Because students tend to be like really long-winded with their summaries and then, and then, and then, or they just totally miss the mark and they put like one sentence and you're like, that didn't even capture the main idea at all. So if you could share some ideas that support the science of reading about the importance of summarizing, like what would you think is important to include in what we call a through lesson, like the heart of your units? Um, yeah, so there's, I would say there's two main strategies that I've always used in the classroom and at EB for summarizing. If you have a text that is telling a story of some kind, especially if it's a shorter text, um, it could be fiction, but it could also be a nonfiction true life story, then SWBST is a really good method to use. Um, we use that method in several of our resources, including summarizing suite you know, where we teach students to sweep away the extra details and get to the meat of what they're talking about. Um, and then SWBST stands for somebody wanted, but so then. Um, and that's a really good way to get them to write a summary that's really just two or three sentences long. And it gives them some of the words that they're actually going to be using in their summary. So the somebody is the character or the person you're talking about, but then the wanted, but so then are actual words that are gonna show up in that little summary. Um, so that's great for simple texts that tell a story. Now, if you have a longer nonfiction text that's more like informational, it's not actually telling a story, um, then this is one method that I use with my high school students. And we also, I wish I could remember, we do have a summarizing resource at EB that uses this one too. And it really focuses on the first sentence of the summary. Um, and so the formula is basically, the authors are going to give the article, the author, 
a verb that shows what the author does, and then they're going to say the main topic of the essay of, of the article, and that's um, the first sentence. So, for example, and this is totally made up, um, in his article "Pie is Great," Daniel Lopez explains why pie is a wonderful dessert to make. So. Pie is great is the article name. Daniel Lopez is the author. Explains is the verb that he is doing. And then why pie is a wonderful dessert to make. That's the main topic. And then for the rest of the summary, students explain the main points of the article. And one really good trick to keep students from writing too much is when they are annotating the article, tell them only annotate five words or fewer. It's the rule of five. So don't underline anything that's more than five words long. If you absolutely have to break that rule because some things are a little bit complex, paraphrase in the margins what the author is saying right there in your annotations. Then when you write the rest of your summary, you're just stretching out those little main points that you've been underlining or you're transferring what you've been paraphrasing. And that's a really good way to keep students from just, you know, basically just writing the article again or highlighting the entire text. Oh my gosh, I love that. And I think like mind blown, right? If, even if you're doing somebody wanted, but so then like, underline the somebody, underline the wanted, you know, all of that. And I think, I mean, Jameson, he's my son, right? He's in fifth grade. He learned SWBST back in like first grade. And I even see Davey using it now in second grade. And I'm like, this is such a good skill for you. Keep using it. And I love even now at 10 years old, Jameson will read something. And he'll be like, okay, who's the somebody? What's the, you know, and I love that because I think if we can give our students sentence frames, and that's what I'm hearing here with either fiction or these nonfiction texts, if we can give them sentence frames as they summarize, it's going to be focused. They're going to have like a clear vision. And then their summaries finally will be like relevant and not include all these details that aren't necessary. So I, I love those. A follow-up sure. question to this. So with summarizing in the middle school level, how often should I, can I be doing this with my students? Like, do I give them five minutes and we just do think pair share on a particular text piece that we read the night before? Do you get what I'm asking? Yeah, I would say on any main text, having students summarize would be important because once you teach them that skill, practicing it over and over is, you know, that's a good thing to do. So I would say really with any main text that you're reading, adding a summarizing component at some point during the lesson would be helpful. Love it. And I guess when you really think about it, like summarizing is one, one way to monitor students' reading comprehension, right? You're just checking in with them. Yep got it, move on to maybe a more complex part of the text. So I'm curious if you have other reading comprehension ideas that you can share with us. For example, like at EB, we talk about how if you give an essential question before reading the text, it can be really helpful because it can focus their reading, give them something to take evidence on. So if you could speak into any ideas for monitoring students' reading comprehension. Um, yeah, so um, I could definitely talk about the essential question. Um, but one thing I do want to be clear is that with the science of reading, when we talk about monitoring comprehension, we're really talking about students um, monitoring their own comprehension. Mm -hmm. um, so like, you know, when you're, you're reading a book, especially if it's late at night or you're distracted and you get through, you know, a chapter and then you stop and go, wait a second, did I actually understand what I was just reading? Um, so that's that's uh, comprehension monitoring. And that's what good good readers understand when they're not getting it. And honestly, some of our younger readers um, they don't even understand that they don't understand it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's a really important thing to um, to think about. And so um, there's different things that students can do or you can help students do in order to help them to monitor their own comprehension. Um, so summarizing is one. So we just talked about that because if they can't write a summary, then they understand, okay, I'm probably missing something. 
Um, you can have them say the main idea or give the main point of a particular part of the reading. You know, we just read two paragraphs. Who can tell me the main point of what we just read? Uh, predict what will happen next. If we are understanding what we're reading, then we can make solid predictions about what's going to happen. It doesn't mean our predictions will be correct, but we can make logical predictions. Um, and then you can also use just guided questions as, as pause as students are reading. These can be written questions. These can be verbal questions, but ask them questions about their reading to make, you know, so that they know I'm having trouble with these questions. I must not have read this correctly. Um, and then another thing to do is to teach them their fix-up strategies. So if they can't say the main idea or they can't predict what will happen next or they can't answer these guiding questions, here are some things you can do. Um, the first one is reread. That's the most common one and it's often very effective. Sometimes we were just not reading carefully. So go back and reread what you read. Um, look up unfamiliar words or ask the teacher what these words mean is important. Um, look up or ask information, ask about information that you're not understanding. And then also, and this is what I think more advanced readers understand and younger readers or less advanced readers don't, is sometimes we just have to keep reading because sometimes the author wants us to be a little bit confused. That's part of keeping the reading interesting. They give you little clues and you go, huh, where'd that come from? And sometimes you didn't miss anything. You just have to keep on reading. It's like watching a movie. Just keep watching. Sometimes the questions get answered for you. So showing those fix up strategies to students can be very helpful. Definitely. I think like students don't know what they don't know, right? Like telling them that, like you might encounter this in this story and that's okay. One of your strategies is to keep going. Then we'll come back. We might have to reread it, like really introducing them to those strategies up front. It's almost like those monitoring strategies can be a part of a pre-reading activity too, yes, right? Like sure. discussing it with students. Yeah. And when I taught um, a basic level class in, in high school with ninth graders, we did these, we taught I taught these fix-up strategies with students and I uh, actually wrote them down on a chart and we kept it up in the classroom, reread, look up unfamiliar words, look up information, keep reading. And they, you know, they, they knew to reference that. And that's high school students. So I know middle school students need that too. 100%. I, I love it. What's interesting with this and what's cool about teaching middle school is like in theory, a teacher could play this part of the podcast episode for mm -hmm. their class mm -hmm. so that I understand as a student, like, oh, this is just normal. This is just a part of learning to become a reader um, as opposed to like giving a whole lecture on it or whatever. Like it just is, would be interesting to learn about it from a different more scholarly lens than me as a teacher. Student. Not that me teaching in front of the class is not a scholarly lens, but you kind of get what I'm saying that Hey, I'm just teaching you about how we think as humans. You know, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I talked to Will, my son about this, who's six, who's just right now learning how to read. Mm -hmm. And it is really interesting, especially when he doesn't understand a word, which we're going to get into in here in a moment with word recognition. But when he doesn't understand a word in, on a page, he kind of loses sight of what he, what that page was about because he's spending so much of his brain power figuring out what this word is. Yeah. So he just inherently goes back once he gets whatever the word is and figures it out, he'll go back and reread the whole page mm -hmm. with the, okay, I understand what that word is. And then he'll repeat to me what that page was about. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's really cool to like kind of watch that unfold with someone who at that at six, like knows, like I'm just learning how to mm -hmm. do this thing of reading and I think that's still applicable to 12, 13, 14 year olds, 20 year olds, you know, with certain words that I'm reading that I don't know from a super esoteric text. I'm like, dude, I got to go read that again. I think that's right. really, really interesting. 
Yeah, and I think students need to know this is just what good readers do at every level. You could mm -hmm. you could have your PhD in reading and you're still doing these things when you do your reading. Your texts are probably a higher level at that point, but that's what all good good readers do. Yeah, I was reading something. So we're re recording a podcast episode here um, in a, for a, a, something that's going to air a little bit later in February um, on Hattie's research on teacher efficacy. And I was reading like a research study on this and there are some words in there that I was like, okay, they've totally lost me. I have no idea what I'm reading. I got to go look this up. I got to understand what this, you know, thing means and blah, 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 whatever to be able to understand what I was reading. And that's just, I'm 38 years old, you know, it never goes away. I think that's right. really important mm -hmm. for, for our readers to understand. Yeah, for sure. Um, so just a couple more questions, Pat, around this. This is so helpful. I, I hope you guys are enjoying this. And if you are, please let us know over on Instagram at EB academics, just send us a direct message you know, say your thanks to Pat and I'll pass it along to her. Um, and if you want more podcast episodes around the science of reading, like definitely let us know and feel free to reach out. Um, but Pat, can you explain the significance of incorporating higher level questions into our reading lessons? You know, how can we formulate questions in this way? Or how can these types of questions really push students toward that, you know, inferential or evaluative reading? And are there frames that teachers could use to really set students up for success in this capacity? Can you speak into that for us? Oh, yes. I have some specifics. <laughs> I love, <laughs> love it. That comes um, prepared. Well, first of all, because I know Jessica mentioned it earlier, the essential question, that's really important in a lesson, especially if your lesson is based on a particular text, like a novel or a short story. Um, but you can actually I mean, you could tie multiple units together with the same essential question, um, depending on how you want to frame everything. So your essential question is basically what is going to guide readers through the text and, and through the lesson and through the unit. Um, personally, I like, and granted, this is from more of a high school perspective, but I think some middle schoolers appreciate this too. Um, I like my essential questions to be more universal. Yeah. Um, you know, like what... Um, what character trait is necessary for survival? That might not be a perfect example, but you get what I mean. Like that's mm -hmm. that's a general world question. It's not specific to any particular book. Um, but if your students need more support, you can also go more text specific. You know, you could say, for example, which trait of the main characters helped the main character to survive? So you can definitely make it smaller scope if you have students who maybe aren't ready for that more abstract thinking yet. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's something like that. It's on big, big topics like survival, empathy, friendship, love, that kind of thing. And it's it's created as a question because students answer that question through their reading. You know, they take examples from their reading along with what they know about life and they put that together to answer that question. Um, so the essential question is, is important as well. Um, but if you're just looking for like sentence stems or sentence starters to create some higher level questions, um, I just have a list of, there's many more than this, but here's some, um, and these are just the beginnings. And then you would fill it in with, with what is appropriate for what you guys are, are reading or doing. Um, so why do you think dot, 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 how do you know, uh, what if, so what if this happened, how would you have responded if dot, 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 why is blank important in this text? How would you describe um, how does blank in the text compare to blank? Based on blank, what can you infer about? And again, these are just, uh, obviously these are parts of sentences because you're filling in this with stuff that you guys are reading about. Um, what does the author mean when they say blank? Why does the author blank? 
what is the main idea of this text? Um, and this is these two I really like also, what part of the text do you connect with? And then very importantly, what part of the text do you not connect with? Because mm. sometimes students aren't going to connect with the text. Um, they aren't going to relate. And it's important for them to dig into that as well. Why, why can't I relate to this text? Um, so those are all really good ways to begin questions related to what you're reading. I think what I we, you could do as a teacher too, is you could take those, tell chat GPT, hey, take these, mm -hmm. these sentence stems for this yep. particular text and fill them in for me and give me a bunch of varieties of, of question of way to ask these questions that you could bring into the classroom and take chat GPT like five seconds, which is the yes. genius of the platform. Yes. And I'm and curious. After, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna, I'm curious, Pat, when you are creating essential questions for like a novel unit that we're using or any resource really, is that your process? Do you go on chat GPT and then like tweak it? Or like, how do you come up when no, like, okay, this is a good essential question. I, I think ChatGPT can definitely help. I would say that I usually just come up with it because I've been doing it for so long mm -hmm. that I already have in my brain a lot of uh, real world ideas that I want students to consider. Um, so you could you could do it either way. I don't typically rely on ChatGPT unless it's maybe to finesse the wording of it. Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe, can you simplify this for fifth grade? Mm -hmm. Because I'm having a hard time getting out of, you know, <laughs> right. eighth, maybe I've just written an eighth grade resource and I'm having a hard time thinking about how fifth graders would process it. Um, so so that how do you know then that it's like, you're like, yep, this is my essential question I'm going with. Like when you've, yeah. you've got it. <laughs> I know it when I feel like this is what my, I want my students to take away from the whole lesson. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't care if when they're 40 years old, they remember the plot of Romeo and Juliet, but hopefully they are still thinking about the topic of love, you know, and, and what is true love mm. and that kind yeah. of thing. So I love what, that, Pat. Like, mm -hmm. what, it's so cool that we get to do that as English teachers. Like, you yes. know, like we're not doing that necessarily in math of like impacting 40 years down the line, how someone thinks about love because of a text that we read in eighth grade. Like, right. I love that. That's so great. Was there more reading memorable for sure? Totally. Was there more that you wanted to add to this? Um, well, I think the only thing that I would add is, you know, remember that your students can write the questions too. You don't have to write all the questions. I really, really recommend whether you're doing a Socratic seminar or we have what's called a real talk discussion, which is where students, um, they write their own observations and they discuss them. Um, you know, let students come up with some of their own questions and you can certainly preview them before you make it into a whole class discussion. Um, but I think that that it's not just helpful because it helps students to feel take more ownership over a discussion, but it also helps them with their own reading because good readers ask themselves questions while they read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so great. Thanks, Pat. I love that one. I Hopefully that one was super helpful for you guys. It was helpful for me just talking about it. Yeah. Um, okay, next question is, you know, how do teachers use these strategies that you've shared and how do we help students improve in language comprehension when they're still really having trouble with word recognition? So if we're still like in that arena, how can we apply these anyways? Yes. So I would say that the first thing is don't make the very common mistake that most of us make when we first start teaching, which is to assume that because a student has a problem with word recognition, that they also will have a problem with language comprehension. I think a lot of students end up with very low level texts or low level ideas, even though they are very bright and can really hold their own in a discussion because they're having trouble decoding the actual text. Um, so you do have to remember that a, a student could be 
literally unable to read and still have a very high level of, of thinking skills. So you wanna remember that for sure. Um, when I'm saying this, I'm thinking about the student who bombs every single reading comprehension quiz that you give them, but then you show a film in class and they are leading the discussion, mm -hmm. right? These are, and, and you go, whoa, <laughs> like, I didn't know you had that. Um, so you wanna keep that in mind for sure. So I would say these are just, just a list of things that can be helpful. We talked about this before, but activate prior knowledge and build background before you read a text. So really front load with that information. Um, a good example is like if you've read Esperanza Rising, um, which is about a girl in Mexico who is comes from a rich family and then she ends up working as a migrant worker with her mother in California. Um, you might want to, for example, ask students, what do you know about how food is grown and harvested for selling? Um, you could ask them, what do they know about the Great Depression? You could do an activity that teaches students about events like the Dust Bowl and Mexican repa repatriation in the United States. That's going to come up in the book. And also, you can uh, tap into your class's cultural capital. You can ask things about like their family's values and their family's dynamics so they can compare their family, for example, to Esperanza's family. Um, so activating that prior knowledge, building background. Also provide audio versions of the text. Um, I know at EB, we've begun to include audio versions of our main texts, and you can also, you can find um, often, especially if it's a well-known book, you can find the audio version online, or you can just read it aloud, you know, if you want to do that. Um, but having students actually physically listen to the text along with reading along is very helpful. Um, work with smaller sections of a, a text at a time and chunk the reading. Sometimes the answer is not to give simpler reading, it's just to give students less at a time so they can really tackle it better. Mm -hmm. um, help, help students make real world connections so they're finding relevancy in what they're reading. Um, use culturally relevant texts in your classroom so that students don't disconnect because they feel like their voice is not being heard or that they're not being represented. In some districts, this may be a problem because you're given your curriculum, you're told which text to use. I would say still work with your district to try to change that, but while that's happening, you know, bring in outside texts. Maybe you have to read this book that's not very diverse, but bring in a short story, maybe that is, or a poem, um, an article, something that can actually tie in more cultural relevancy. Um, graphic organizers, we all know that those are super, super helpful in helping students to make meaning and organize information. And then finally, use multimodal learning. So don't make it all about written text. You can also include images, you know, study photographs, watch videos, things like that. Like if I were doing Esperanza Rising, there's a very important scene with a dust storm. And if you're not living in a place that has dust storms, show them a YouTube video of what a dust storm looks like. And kids are going to, you know, understand that scene so much better. So use mm -hmm. a lot of different ways to give students information. There's so much beyond just written words. That was so good. Right? <laughs> Are you guys all just like, boom, like, yeah. That's a brilliance. Oh, re listen to it. that like five times. <laughs> right oh, I just learned from other people. This isn't for me. <laughs> oh. I think what, what was coming up for me as you were walking through all of that, Pat, is when I would teach Shakespeare, I think that's a perfect example of not really being under, able to understand some of these words, the way in which it's oh, phrased. Yeah. And we can still garner so much from that text, despite not being able to really read and comp like understand it in terms mm -hmm. of the like the language barrier, really, if we're being honest, because of, of how it was written. And I think too, you know, of incorporating the multimedia, like what I would do with 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 anything with Shakespeare is we'd read a little bit and then I'd I'd show them the scene. 
and like show them it unfolding. And they'll be like, oh, I understand now, you know? And just everything that you shared is just on an elevated level and so many different ways in which we can pull um, activities and ways to help our students access text because you're right. Just because they can't decode something does not mean that they cannot have a higher level discussion around the text in any capacity. So super helpful. Love that. Thank you, Pat. Um, Last question that we have, and then we'll wrap things up. This has been, oh my gosh, I love it. So, so helpful. So these strategies are great. Absolutely love all of them. We can't forget about the importance of still, you know, helping students be passionate about reading and enjoy reading in general, right? Just like that love of reading. So how do you think that these strategies can contribute to fostering this passion, this love of reading in our middle school students? Well, I think there's a there's so much that goes into that for sure. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on that. Um, relevancy is so important. I mean, if you really want your students to love reading, um, you've you've got to make sure that your the different voices in your classroom are heard and that people are represented on multiple levels. Student choice is absolutely huge when you know getting students to to love reading, and you can't always do that, especially for example if you have a class novel. Um, but you could do, you could have uh, students choose if you're doing like lit circles or if they're doing independent reading, or maybe they've got to do a class novel, but maybe you have different articles that they can choose from, or you can let them research on their own. Um, That can be very helpful for sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, student choice is just the biggest thing in in getting people to enjoy reading. My seven-year-old son, all he wants to read is Dogman comics. <laughs> but I think he loves it so much. And, it, you know, he does, he just, he just likes it. We, he's rereading the same one, like for the f- third time. I but love that you said that right now. What? Because I love that you said that right now, because literally before I came up here to record podcasts, Davey, who just turned eight, is rereading Diary of a Wimpy Kid. For like the 10th time, because it's right. we're home from school today, school is canceled for a storm. I'm like, you have to read before you have screen time, right? I'm like, can't you pick anything else? And then I stepped back and I was like, no, it's rainy out. He enjoys this. He loves it. Like, why not go read it? Enjoy. Yes. And so I just love hearing you like reaffirm that. Yeah. Thank and I mean, studies have shown that rereading the same text is very helpful for kids. Mm-hmm. Probably all of us, but our texts are so long, it's hard to reread. But with the right. kids, book, you know, it's so easy to do it. And there's really, there's a reason, you know, your four-year-old keeps handing you llama llama red pajama because there's comfort in that. And that's mm-hmm. building a positive association with reading, which is really important. Um, One thing I forgot about too, especially if students don't have choice, those pre-reading activities to hook them in with like a fun game um, with an interesting text about the topic, uh, maybe a class discussion where people bring in their own experiences. There's a lot of different ways that you can get students excited about reading a text before they jump into it. And building that background, activating prior knowledge, hooking them before, that can really build their investment, even in a novel that they otherwise might have checked out on. I think us too, as teachers, being excited about the text that we're reading, even if we aren't, (laughs) you know? that we can fake it so that they love it. Like I just think of teaching the fall of the house of Usher when I taught high school and it's so good, but it's long, right? And it's a lot to get through and there's a lot in there. So we listened to that text and we would stop every so often. I would be super animated, like, oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, can you like a whole, you know what I mean? And I know not everybody's like that. And I'm not actually really like that, but I would get into that character when we would read the text because they would get so much more out of it 
simply because of the way in which I was presenting the material to them. And we all know that with things as adults and PDs that we've gone to, where someone's teaching the same concept of something that Mm -hmm. we've heard before, but the speaker matters and the way in which the speaker delivers the content matters. So how can we lean on our own, you know, natural abilities as teachers, not to be like cruise directors, that's not what I'm saying, but to show our passion and love of a text to help that translate to our students too. Yeah. And if, and even if you can't fake it till you make it, I lean on the audio versions because there are so many great narrators out there. I was listening to, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Watson's go to Birmingham and LeVar Burton was narrating it. You know, the host of reading rainbow when I was growing up and uh, it was, it was just so magical listening to him read. And sometimes you have texts uh, like um, a long walk to water where there is a female character and a male character, and they'll have different speakers for the girl and different ones for the boy. And it just really brings it to life. You know, you can use your library app if you don't want to pay for it um, and have students listen to at least part of that from a professional narrator. That's, that's really powerful too. Cool. I love it. I just feel like listeners are going to want to go back and listen to this on repeat because there's so much (laughs) knowledge you just shared and they're going to be like, what do I try first? And what else do I want to do? I love it. Guarantee you we're going to get Instagram messages like, bring Pat back on the podcast. So Pat, this is not your fir- first and last. This will be oh, I'm sure, the you. first of many. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Pat. We are just honored that you said yes, that you, you know, put yourself outside of your comfort zone to come and share these strategies with our teachers. So thank you so much for being here. Next week, you guys on the podcast, we actually have some incredible um, guests who will be joining Megan, who is our other co-host on the podcast. She's interviewing two professors from Stanford who are going to be talking about a feelings-based approach to literature. So you definitely don't want to miss that one. Mark your calendars for that. And then we're coming back into the months with talking about how we can admire annoying behavior in students. Oh my gosh, that sounds (laughs) totally counterintuitive. Um, And then the research behind great teachers. So we've got a lot of incredible content coming your guys' way. And if you feel so inclined to leave us a review on iTunes, it would mean the absolute world to us. And that helps us get our message in front of more middle school ELA teachers like yourself. So thank you so much for joining us, Pat. We are honored that you said yes. You are just a wealth of knowledge. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. All right, you guys, (laughs) we'll see you next week on the podcast. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Bye, everyone.